Hello, my friends. David Metcalf here. Welcome to Refreshingly Honest Christian. Uh, if this is your first time, welcome. And if this is not your first time, th- welcome as well. Glad you're here. Uh, today's episode, I'm really excited about. I'm excited for you to listen to Jared Bias. You may or may not know him. He is an incredible guy, and uh, he's got a new book, Love Matters More. So we talk all about that, and I would definitely encourage you to check it out. You can go to his website, jaredbias.com, and he's actually giving away the first chapter for free. You can download it, uh, check it out, see if you like it. And so we just have a really great conversation, and um, I, I feel like a lot of the concepts in this book, when embodied, will make the world overall, just a nicer, kinder, more loving place. And so really excited for you to get into it. That said, before we do, just want to let you know, we are on Patreon. And so if you want to support the show, you like what we're doing, uh, if you've gotten any value from these conversations, uh, we would definitely encourage you to check us out. Sorry, I'm laughing because my dog is, uh, she's chewing on her toy and it has a little squeaker in it. Can you hear that? Can you hear that squeak? Okay, moving on. But we are on Patreon, and if you want to support the show for as little as just, a few, I think, a few bucks a month, uh, you can buy us a coffee, and it really means a lot. There's also some benefits in there as well. Uh, recently, we've been kicking around some ideas. I think once we get past uh, 10 or more people, we're going to start hosting monthly Zoom meetings so we can hang out, have a little bit of conversation. Uh, as we always say, we want to make this a conversation. And so, uh, yeah, check it out. There's also some other benefits in there as well. Uh, but again, if you want to support us and you like what we're doing with the show, please check us out, patreon.com slash David Metcalf. And so without further ado, here is my conversation with Jared Bias. Enjoy. Jared Bias, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Bias. Are you biased? Is that, like, what is the thing there? This is how we're going to start this. We're <laughs> going to start this with that joke. <laughs> I, you've, I hear I, that so much. I bet. You, I'm sure you've gotten that your, your entire life, so I'm sorry to be that person. So, Jared, you are the author of a new book called Love Matters More, which I'm really excited to talk about with you today. You're also the co-host of a podcast called The Bible for Normal People. You are a professor of philosophy and a former pastor, is that right? Yeah, correct. That, does that does that about explain what you do? And 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 <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think that captures it. Cool, perfect. Although it, it it does leave out the fact that I have four kids, so most of my time is spent wrangling four kids. But yeah, besides that, yeah, yeah, four kids. And during a pandemic, how is that going for you guys? Well, we actually homeschool. We've always homeschooled our kids, so their life is pretty much the same as it's always been. Um, you know. Um, there's some 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 bumps along the way, but not as disruptive as others. Yeah, I hear you. That's awesome. All right, so love matters more. So my first question to you is: Love matters more than what, Jared? Well, it, in, you know, when I we thought of this title, it really has a double meaning, although they're they're both similar. Which is in the 
in the specific way that I mean it for the book is it matters more than getting it right, mm. than this idea of truth-telling. So it really revolves around this phrase, speaking the truth in love, where the emphasis in my upbringing was always on the truth-telling. So I'm trying to reverse that and say, not it's not that only love matters, truth still matters, but maybe love matters more. And, and I think that's an important uh, distinction. But then at the end of the day, for my personal belief, I think love matters more than everything. Mm. And it's sort of this overarching goal that I feel like the, the Bible itself endorses as sort of the thing that matters most. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that line, telling the truth in love, uh, <laughs> I feel like it's almost like a, kind of a joke whenever you hear that. It's like, it's like oh, now you, you know somebody's about to say something really messed up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's basically the Christian equivalent of starting with like I'm not racist, but exactly. <laughs> but whatever I'm about to say is terrible, and uh, yeah, yeah. What is so that line? What is, what does telling the truth in love mean to you? Like, how do you interpret that to mean? Uh, how have how have we even maybe misused that from scripture? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think in two ways. One is we've used it to justify being jerks. Basically, I think we've put telling the truth is the most important thing we can do. In fact, to the point that, almost to the absurd point that in my tradition, I would have said that the most loving thing we can do is tell someone the truth. So we actually conflated those two. Mm. So yeah, there's a lot of things we can do that feel good and that are nice and loving and kind and compassionate. But the most important thing in terms of what love really is, is to tell people they're going to go to hell if they don't believe the right things. And, and in some sort of logic, I guess that makes sense. Um, but along the way, there's all of there's a lot of collateral damage around weaponizing this idea because usually when we say that, we're not just telling the truth, quote unquote, um, or even just our opinion. But usually we're uncomfortable. We're bringing our own baggage, our own fears, our own prejudices into the mix, and that's where it can really be dangerous. Yeah, yeah, it is dangerous. And even truth or the truth, it's like. That is subjective to your experience, which you get a lot into a lot in the book. You have this word, this German word, and I, I'm going to butcher it. Can you say it for us? <laughs> yeah, it's the Umwelt. Umwelt. Yeah. So could you unpack that a little bit for us, that idea of Umwelt? Yeah, it, it comes from the, the natural scientists uh, who study, study animal behavior, and they came up with this phrase that, that really represents the world as it's experienced by a particular organism. So when you look at the animal kingdom, there's a wide variety of sense perceptions. And all I mean by that is, you know, the dolphin hears in a certain way and has uh, abilities way beyond, say, the mollusk. And the bird flying high has all these abilities that are different than the turtle. They experience the world in a different way because of how they're built and how they've adapted to what they need to do in the world. And so when the, when the hawk looks down on the world, it sees it in a different way because its eyes are built differently. And that perspective is its umwelt. It's mm. the way it experienced the world because of how it's built. And then if we take an add to that, so when we go to humanity, that doesn't get simpler. It gets more complex because we have culture and we have personality and we have all these other things built in that affect how we see the world. So I start the book with this idea of umwelt because I think it's so important, like you said, that when we're talking about truth, we have to start with the humility and accepting the reality of the limitations that we have 
as humans and how we are able to perceive the world. It'd be great if we had the God's eye view, but we don't. Yeah. 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 And at another point, and I won't over explain it, but you, you say like maybe only God sees it's an elephant. And it's like, again, speaking the truth or the truth, capital T, baked in it is this assumption that like, you know, the truth, the universal truth. And you, you make that comparison with the three blind men, many, which many, I think many people know that story. Do you mind sharing that story and tying it into this idea of love matters more? Yeah, sure. It's, you know, I think a lot of people have heard it. It's just this parable of these three blind men who feel an elephant and they're feeling different parts of the elephant and, but they're blind. So they can only feel the one part and they don't see the whole. And so they feel, you know, one thinks it's a tree trunk uh, that this object in front of them is a tree trunk, and it really it's the leg of the elephant. And I just make the point, though, that the entire story hinges on us being able to eventually come to the realization that it's an elephant. What if we didn't have the God's eye view and didn't know it was an elephant? Mm. What if only God knows it's an elephant? Yeah. Then we're all in this, you know, we're all the blind men. Yeah. We don't get the perspective of the all-seeing narrator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, no, and none of us thinks that we're the blind man. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. That that's the, exactly that's the amazing which is the point of the story, right? Like it's this yeah. yeah. Oh man, I love that. Well, I'm curious for you, Jared, you know, even and I don't maybe want to pick apart too much, you know, just the title or the title, but you know, this idea of love. Like how would you define love? How would you define it? Yeah, and that's something that I think still needs to be built out because I find it to be a very nuanced and complex. I put it in the realm of wisdom not rules. And wisdom is gray and messy and complicated. But I, in, for the book, I borrow from Bell Hooks, who borrows from M. Scott Peck, the idea that love is extending oneself for the spiritual growth of myself or another. Mm. And, and so I, I think that's a, an, a helpful starting place for how we talk about what love is. But I think love the definite to kind of go along with the themes of the book. I think the definition of what love is changes mm. over generations and circumstances. And we have to work it out. There isn't a once and done definition of what love is that is universal and applies in all times and in all circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. You even mentioned just a little bit there at the beginning where it's like, yeah, the most loving thing you could do is, you know, tell people they're going to hell. <laughs> and it's like, and like you said, like maybe there's an argument for that logic in the sense like like I've heard famous atheist comedian Penn Jillette, who's also a magician, say, yeah, the most loving thing you could do is tell people they're going to hell because like if it, making making he makes the comparison essentially of like like if a truck was coming down and like I didn't know it was coming and it was going to hit me, you better get me like push me out of the way. Right. So there's that idea. But I mean, is it for you? Do you think it's like kind of the classic, like, it's not what you say, it's how you say it? Or is it this idea of, like, you can say hard things, true things? Because what I'm picking up on is, like, not that truth doesn't matter. Truth matters, but you're saying at the end of the day, like, <laughs> let's lead with love. That matters most. I just wonder for you, like, what are you hearing in, in that? Yeah, well, two things. One, I want to go back because I, I forgot an important uh, part of my definition of love that I would add, which is that it's at the intersection of impact and intention. Mm. And I think that's an important nuance is that it's it's a relational term. So sometimes when we tell the truth, when we speak the truth in love, we can say, well, I didn't intend to hurt your feelings. And as though that absolves us of all wrongdoing. Yeah. However, love is at that intersection of what we intend, but it's also the impact that it has. And mm. so it's important to, I think, 
wrestle with that. Um, so that being said, I think the the idea of love mattering more is is what you said. I wouldn't maybe reduce it down to it's not what you say, but how you say it. I would say it's both what you say and how you say it. Mm. But I think there is a way to hold to our beliefs in a more kind and loving way. And that's not advocating doormat theology where we let people run over us and we don't stand up for what we believe. Um, it's doing the hard work of being mature, emotionally mature adults where we can enter a space and be loving and be in relationship with people who disagree with us fundamentally about fundamental things. Mm. And I think peace is at the, you know, a, a true peace that doesn't come by uniformity, but through unity requires individuals to be able to stand in a space confidently um, with conviction, um, but not with contempt, Yeah, uh, with kindness and with love. And I think that's the vision I have for us as, as Christians to be a witness to that kind of convicted civility. Mm. Yeah, that word impact, like the impact that it has on others, whether I think intended or not, we have a saying in my household between my wife and I where it's like, like at the beginning of our marriage, the big thing that we always said was like, well, I didn't, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. I didn't, like the intention, right? It's like, well, I didn't mean to. And, but a big thing that we say is like, well, it doesn't matter whether <laughs> you meant to or not, it still hurt me. And, and, uh, and yeah, and the impact that it had on me really hurt me. So please try to whatever, whatever, you know, like, mm -hmm. and so I think that's really, really profound. And also maybe even just being aware of, yeah, you know, however well-intentioned you are, you can recognize, um, that, you know, your so-called truth telling or you doing something out of love, recognizing that maybe the impact itself is, it's, it's the result that you weren't really looking for. Right. Yeah. And intention is only half the work. In some ways, it's the easier work because it's the work I can do alone. I can work on my own intentions. I can make sure that I have the right intentions and I can have my own right constitution. I think it's hard work, you know, but that's self-work. Mm. Impact requires me to listen to you. Mm. It requires that I'm empathetic, that I understand the logic that you're using by which my words impacted you negatively. And then I have to change not my intention. That's that's good. I have to change my approach with you so that my intention comes out more fully. Mm. And and that's trickier. Yeah. And it's relational and it's messier. So yeah, intention's only only half the battle. Yeah. It just makes me think of that story you tell in in, in that first chapter when you were ten years old, and the pastor has you and your friend in his office. Do you mind telling that story really quick? Yeah, it, it's one of my earliest memories of being in church, which my, my wife tells me I have a, a atrocious memory. So it is when I was like 10, and it's still one of my earliest memories. But um, yeah, you know, we had gone, If you, I grew up Southern Baptist, and so you can kind of picture the wooden pews, and at the end, there's always an altar call. That's the most important part of the service. But I'd already been saved like 20 times, you know, when you're grow up Southern Baptist, you want to know that you know that you know that you're saved. So you, you raise your hand a lot. So I'd already been saved like a dozen times at least. So I thought I had this covered. My best friend and I were sitting there. You know, he does the classic every eye closed, every head bowed, which we thought was a great time to go to the bathroom. So we get up and go to the bathroom. And then a few weeks later, we get called into the pastor's office. And apparently, you know, he said, I'm, I'm just want to tell you, tell you the truth in love. Basically, your behavior by going to the bathroom could have distracted someone from going to heaven because in that moment they could have confessed their sins and 
turn their life to Jesus, but you know, you were rustling about and opening the door and could have distracted them. Like basically people could be in hell because you were being mischievous, you know, little boys. And uh, so that was my, one of my first experiences with this truth telling, uh, telling the truth in love. And as someone who took my faith very sincerely and, uh, I was a very sincere kid. That was pretty devastating to hear that that's, I might've caused that. Yeah. That's a huge, I mean, just the weight as a 10 year old that you would feel like you even mentioned like how it felt like you were in the principal's office, only he could send you to hell. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's like how, it, how, and I mean that right there, the impact alone of, you know, probably a well-intentioned, you know, mm-hmm. preacher bringing you and your friend and saying like, well, hey, here's, you know, here's why, you know, I'm telling you the truth in love. Yeah, that's, gosh. Yeah, th- there's a line, and I'm trying to I'm trying to remember it, where you talk about many Christians are more concerned about like what they believe than <laughs> basically how you live. Does that track right. with you? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's, yeah. You know, there wasn't, and I, I don't want to get too deep or, or, philosophical about this, but I think the reason is, is because Christianity has in large part become about tracking who's in and who's out. Mm. It's become transactional. And when you're transactional and you have to keep up with who's in and who's out, the easiest way to do that is to have a checklist of beliefs. So if I check off the beliefs I'm in, if I don't check them off, I'm out. It's much harder to navigate and measure our Christianness if it's about how we live our life, how well we love. That's that's messy. So we've kind of bureaucratized Christianity and it's been easily reduced to a set of beliefs. If I have 10 things, I can check them off, things I know. Um, and the only sins or behaviors that I really monitor are the things that are really obvious that don't require an intimate relationship with you. It's things that I can just see. Um, and that really is oppressive and discriminates against, for instance, gay people or other, you know things that are kind of seen um, or even you know whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. It's this sort of lazy bureaucratization um, that has led to, yeah, we, we monitor our Christianity by what we believe, which can just be a fact in our head. It doesn't have to be embodied in our everyday lives. And that's mo- more important. That's yeah. more important than how we treat our neighbors, which for me feels so upside down to the vision that Jesus provides for us in the, in the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel almost subversive? making this assertion that, (laughs) which even sounds funny in and of itself, that like love is so provocative. And it is interesting, this connection between, you know, love and truth. Like, I I don't know that you necessarily meant to write a book about truth, (laughs) Uh, but, but actually it was the other way around. Really? I meant to write a book about truth and it come out like it turned the other way. Yeah. Well, that's the, and so that's the one thing I picked up on was this idea that, you know, you know, you talk about how like Christians really almost like idolize truth. Could you speak to that? I mean, it's my own story. I, I idolize truth because it gave me control. I, I'm a person who likes, I don't like surprises. I like routine and I like to be in control of my environment. And I learned intuitively, I think early on that within Christianity, the way to do that was to know more than everyone. Mm. And and so it's a path to feeling secure in a world that can often feel chaotic. So I get it. Um, but I think it does become an idol because it provides this deep emotional need for us for certainty, security, being in control, 
but it's so dangerous because it can be weaponized so easily. Yeah. And again, it's not that I'm against knowledge. I'm very much not against knowledge. I'm very much in favor of the sciences and how we come to knowledge. But it's when it becomes the guide and the end result and we aren't checking our own insecurities that it becomes really dangerous, I think. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, in the book, you you also make the case that like too often we think we're being loving when we aren't. And one of the reasons for that broken system is that we've misunderstand we've misunderstood the relationship uh, between truth and love. Uh, how do you think we've misunderstood that relationship? Well, again, I think it's the idea that really started again, not to get historical or philosophical or nerdy here, but I would say started in in the Enlightenment, which was this idea that if we use reason, we will make the world a better place. Reason became the idol, mm-hmm. kind of it moved from lowercase r to capital R. And over the last 500 years, I think we've kind of operated that way that, you know, we have this objective standard of coming at how the world ought to work, not just scientifically, which seems helpful, but also morally and spiritually and financially, all these other things. And so we have this idea that if you aren't following that track, you're either ignorant or evil, because it's pretty obvious the reasonable thing to do. And then we kind of get locked into this mindset. And I I talk, I don't know if I talk about it in the book, but I I often talk about the age of progress. We have the industrial revolution. It's just this idea that if we just learn more, we will become morally perfect, technologically advanced human beings. Mm. And then the the 40s come along and we start, start dropping atomic bombs that kill thousands upon thousands of people. And the philosophers and the moralists and the ethicists start saying, oh, wait, maybe, right? Well, we have World War I, we have World War II. Maybe all this technology, we're just learning how to kill people better. <laughs> we're not like not killing people. We're just killing them better. And so that starts this age of, of kind of doubt and saying, mm-hmm. wait, maybe we don't just need to know more. Maybe we actually need to develop character mm-hmm. and become more humane and loving people, which isn't all about facts and figures and capital R reason and A plus B equals C. Maybe there's more to it than that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I have to say, as I was reading the book, it made me think of, I'll just tell you a quick story if that's all right. So, yeah. uh, (laughs) So I just posted John 13, 34. It's just that idea, a new command I give you, love one another. Right. And the response I got from one person in particular, and it's always the kind of negative one that that sticks out to you, but it just, this person said, and I won't name names, but love does not mean go along with anything and everything so as not to, fe- to offend anyone. We can show love by standing for righteousness with grace and truth. Jesus drove, drove the Pharisees out of the temple. He didn't just let them be and do what they wanted. He knew their motivation. Not everyone's motivation is pure. I wonder what you think of that. I, I think that that's true. You know, I, I would agree with everything that the person said, I think. Mm. We can stand up for truth. I, I think I don't have enough information to understand what that person means, however, sure. by that. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not, you can say whatever you want to say. I agree. It's, it's how do you embody that? I want to talk to your spouse and your kids and your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors and ask, how much are we standing up for what we believe and how much are we loving people well? Yeah. Yeah. And I would say the relationship for me is 
I don't think we can tell the truth in love without being in love with that person. And that takes commitment and it takes energy. It takes time. It takes a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I just found it was interesting. This assertion that follows as soon as you talk about love, people are like, well, hold on a second. You like, it's scary. It, yeah. It, it, Cause you even talk about like this uncertainty of where lo- like love leads, where you talk about like truth. It's like, it's so, you know, it's almost, uh, yeah, you have, you know, you have this logical pursuit, you know, you're, you're, it's kind of, it's just more predictable in a way, but love, it is, you don't know where it leads. So it's kind of like, why do you think love is so scary? I think that same, similar things that we've talked about. I think we don't like the uncertainty. Mm. Uh, we don't like the messiness. Uh, we like to organize and keep things under control. But then we miss out, I think, on a lot of life when everything is so mechanistic. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's some deep fears for people on on what does it look like if we allow love to guide us? And for me, the irony is the more I allow love to guide me, the more truth actually helps because it helps me with my intentions. It helps me with that impact, right? Mm. So if I want to love the uh, an African community who doesn't have access to water, I've learned, like the knowledge tells me that me being someone from America and going over is probably not the best, the most sustainable solution. I need to know the technology of how water uh, comes in that environment. And like, there's a lot of knowledge that needs to happen. Mm. It's when we let love be the guide that people start getting really scary, mm. um, get, get really scared. And, and that's understandable. I, and that's the thing too, is love is scary. Heck yeah, it's risky. So I don't judge when people say, you know, like the person that interacted with John 13, it gets a little defensive. Mm. Like, heck yeah, it's scary. Like if you don't, if we're not equipped for that kind of journey um, to go into the wilderness, then yeah, I'd be scared too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then you kind of tie it in with this idea of, of the postmodern boogeyman. You even talk about Paul's evolution from certainty to admitting he doesn't hold absolute truth like could you maybe speak to that to that idea of this whole boogeyman that we have that we're facing yeah i mean again to kind of go back historically we have this time in world war one world war two we have these people who are starting to say oh maybe there's some cracks in this enlightenment foundation maybe we don't know everything we thought we knew and we start finding holes in this project the kind of the modern project and you know, a lot of them, I'm going to definitely, they would, they would hate me for this, but a lot of those writers and thinkers aren't doing anything that radical. They're, they're simply pointing out that, for instance, with uh, one thinker, Jacques Derrida is saying, listen, there's holes in words, like language in itself isn't perfect. And so here, let me show you what I mean. And he just spends his whole career reading texts very carefully and mm-hmm. showing, revealing the limitations of, of language. And, you know, Michel Foucault does that with history writing and they're just showing, you know, the limitations of, of what it means to be human. Mm. And I think people get really scared by that, but they're not saying anything goes. That's been, you know, growing up, that's what, that's the postmodern boogeyman was people are like, well, you can't be reading these writers because it's a slippery slope to complete relativism. And these philosophers are really smart. they I remember, I think it's Richard Rorty, who was like, the idea that anything goes is dumb. 
Like who actually believes that? It's it's nonsense. Like yeah. your brain would have to be mush to live your life in such a way that you think nothing matters. Who no one actually does that. Right. Um so. Yeah, this idea that yeah, every belief on a certain topic or, or you know is as good as every other. Right. And and I feel like I know so many Christians, uh, people who I love, who I respect, even people, even in my journey of faith, where I feel like I was at a, not not to say that I'm farther along in any stretch, it's just where I'm at now. I remember a place in time when I kind of viewed, you know, almost like, like what you're saying, like we're headed in this direction where I, in the book, I think you say like, <laughs> where there'll be more sex orgies on street corners <laughs> than CVSs, which is just like a great <laughs> line. Um <laughs> <laughs> you know, you even talk about like how in 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 the Christian tradition, like Harry Potter, the you know Power Rangers, R-rated movies, like all these threats. Like you don't feel that we're headed in that in this sort of relativism. Anything goes. You you don't you don't buy that. Um, I think there are some instances lately that I've seen that, but it's not coming from the academy or from the postmodern thinkers. It's frankly, been coming from politicians, right? So for me, relativism is if I have no self-awareness, and so I think anyone to the right of me is a conservative, and anyone to the left of me, if I define center as me, and anyone to the right of me is conservative, anyone to the left of me is progressive, I have no historical awareness of any objectivity around what I'm thinking in that situation. That's textbook definition of relative. I make the definition of progressive and conservative relative to me. I'm the center of that. Yeah. So this lack of self-awareness and uh, dismissal of of science and these other, you know, basically the irony for me is not to get political, but there's a lot of people in my life that I would have grown up with who were so afraid of relativism who now follow politicians who say, don't listen to the scientists, just listen to me and I'm just going to emote on you and my feelings about this and then I want you to believe me. Like, that's relativism. Mm. That's what I'm, I think we should be worried about. Yeah. 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 You also talk a lot about this idea of like holding absolute truth. And one of the things that I, I actually found really eye opening was you, you say, if you don't mind me quoting the book here, yeah, you just say one thing that helped me in this journey was to recognize that certainty is a feeling just because you feel certain doesn't mean you're right. We can be certain and still believe in all kinds of things. Belief doesn't require certainty, just confidence. I believe all kinds of things I'm not certain about. I even act on my uncertain beliefs in really critical ways. And you talk about how the same is true about our beliefs in God or the Bible. Again, why, I mean, maybe man, I feel like I know we kind of like keep going in circles on this, but like, why do you feel, why do you feel like we're so drawn to this kind of fundamentalism, this idea that you know, I've got the truth, I know I've got the truth, and I can do all types of deplorable things in the name of God because I know. Like, why are we so drawn to certainty? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it comes back to our feelings of safety. I mean, we live in a dangerous world. I mean, we live in an uncertain place. We, we're all going to die someday. We, we know that in the back of our mind, but we really don't like thinking about it in the front of our mind. Like, whatever staves us off from these scary realities of our life, we we use them. Mm. And I think certainty is one of these tools we use to feel more secure and more safe 
in a world that can be dangerous and unsafe and, and uncertain. So again, I don't fault anyone for, I still am drawn to it. Um, I still wish I had it. So yeah. I'm not going to fault people who feel they do have it. It gives, it gives them this sense of safety and it's something we all long for, I think, or most people, I don't know. I can't say everyone. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't fault people for it, but I think it's, it's just not reality. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of things that we have fantasies about that we wish were true, but I, I it's in my experience, it's just not. Yeah. Yeah. Again, just like, just because you feel certain doesn't mean that you're right. Again, that really, that thing that really was the light bulb moment for me was that certainty is a feeling. I never really thought of it as that. I'm like, oh, you're right. Like you even give descriptions like, oh, I feel certain. And it's like, yeah, I would say that. <laughs> uh, which again, like, I feel like maybe that's just the gift of a writer is like, I'm just supposed to like point out the obvious here. Like, <laughs> which like, uh, you know, it was again, just super helpful in the idea of like feeling. So um, I know you're an eight on the Enneagram. Is that right? A proud eight. Uh, and I'm a four. So like, I feel like I have this you know, the emotions you might have in a day, I would have in an hour. So, um, and we, and we all know like, you know, emotions, they, they come and they go. And it, like you said, like, I do wish that I had a little bit more of that certainty that I had before where I don't in my journey. I feel like a lot of that certainty that I had before maybe has been, I don't want to say relegated cause I don't really view it as like a, you know, a downgrade, but, but it, maybe I'm just more confident, but still unsure. Right. Like, I don't know. Like, and you even talk about like, you know, you have like this little mantra that I feel like is so helpful. You talk about, I could be wrong. Say it with me. I believe this thing, but I could be wrong. Why do you think that's so important to have in your arsenal? Well, it, I mean, for me, one of my most important virtues in my life is curiosity. Mm. I feel like it keeps us from apathy and it keeps us from certainty, which for me are two sides of the same coin. And if I'm going to be curious, I have to acknowledge that I could be wrong because there's always this space between what I know or what I think I know and what's real. And, and so it's important for me to keep that space in my life. Mm. Curiosity is so, is so key. You can't have curiosity without ignorance. Because if I, curiosity is wanting to know, which by definition means I don't already know. And so we, we have to be, remain ignorant on some level. And I think, again, it's that humility. I could be wrong is simply acknowledging that I'm not omniscient. And knowledge, pure knowledge, mm. means I need to have all the facts about everything. Yeah. There can be no unknowns. And I will never have that in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you don't you don't have the god view or you don't know if it's truly an elephant, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think at another point I I don't know I I I remember you saying something about like uh like judgment and curiosity, they don't mix well together. <laughs> mm -hmm. Could you maybe yep. speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I often say yeah, curiosity and judgment make poor roommates. Um it's hard to have both in your head at once. And so if I'm curious, I'm often not judging because judging comes from a place of knowing um, and curiosity comes from a place of unknowing. Mm. So I try to remain curious. And, and that is very practical. When I'm talking to someone who disagrees with me politically, 
which I've had lots of those conversations this year. And I, I like having those conversations because I can always be curious. I may know their talking points, but I don't know why that individual holds those talking points. I don't know why that matters to that person. And so I can go on a journey with them and just ask questions and be curious because I want to know them. I want to understand. Um, and that leads me to not be defensive. I'm not trying to defend my position. I'm not trying to convince anyone. I genuinely want to understand why they hold the beliefs that they do mm. and why they vote the way they do. And so curiosity for me keeps me from being judgmental because I'm too busy wondering. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe assessing the ways that they're wrong and you want to point out like, I feel like it really does. I, I love that idea that they're, they, they, they don't make good roommates. And I, I've certainly learned that to be true. And I think at the end of the day, if we're trying to like connect with people or to love people or to, you know, and not live in an echo chamber, it's really important to not have that judgmental thing in the back of your head. That's like, I think really just getting in the way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important then to know, you, you just mentioned it earlier. What do we want out of these conversations? Because yeah. if we want to connect with people and feel understood and understand others, if that's the goal, if we want to love well, judgment isn't going to get us there. We're going to end up in a different destination than where we wanted to end up. So we have to have the right tools for the journey, and we got to know the destination if we're going to, going to know what tools we need to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And another point you you know, you, you suggest that like, if we can't come up with better ways of behaving with other human beings who don't think exactly like us, uh, we can expect to see even more people rightly so walk or even more accurately limp away from the Christian faith. And honestly, Jared, there's not another thing I can think of that Christian leaders in particular are more afraid of, which is just losing the next generation. (laughs) One thing that really like stuck out to me was how, which I don't know if you still are a pastor, but while you were a pastor, you you hosted these these weekly classes for atheists called For Skeptics Only. <laughs> and I, what I loved so much about that is for me, at, at the very least, it just showed, hey, like we're willing to make space for people who who don't believe what we believe flat out. And we have no agenda, right? Like, like I think that's the key point there. Like the world is so much broader in the bubbles that we like kind of create for ourselves. You know, you have a Christian therapist, you have a Christian mechanic, you have all of these things, this idea of in the world, not of it. It's like so many people are just not <laughs> in the world. Like they don't, like they are basically the Amish. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> um, obviously that's an extreme uh, example, but I feel like you're just, you're picking up on something well, we that's build really these- key. Yeah. We build these. Go ahead. We we build fences. Yeah, I, we just build fences. Like so, in the Jewish tradition, you have the the commandments, right? Um, but for Jews, uh, historically, they build fences around that. Meaning, like, well, you can't walk. You know, what does it mean to work work on the Sabbath? Is walking working? Well, we're going to build that fence because we don't want to break the commandment. So why don't we not walk? Mm. Okay, but if walking is breaking the Sabbath, how much can you walk before you break the Sabbath? Okay, so let's say it's 10 miles, even though maybe we think it's really only two. So they just keep building these fences to protect against mm-hmm. breaking the commandments. So when you say in the world, not of it, that's what I think of is we're so afraid of being of it that we build fences so that we're not ever actually in it. Yeah. Then we can make sure that we're not of it. But the problem is then we get 
I have kind of a, a gross analogy, but I feel like we become <laughs> almost like incestuous. Like we we yeah. create more disease and more famine and more lack because we're not circulating um, our our interactions with other people. We become so isolated that we start to um, kind of feed on ourselves, and it's. I think really unhelpful, but I, I think it comes from, again, a good place if we don't want to be of the world, right. but also we have a very particular brand. I grew up with a very particular brand of what it means to be of the world. Mm. So you can be greedy and make, you know, 30 times the salary of your average worker. That's not frowned on. Mm. That's not being of the world, but watching a rated R movie where there's a sex scene is so it's an interesting way that we even draw that line of what it means to be of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And it creates this kind of weird subculture in a way, like you said, incestuous. I don't, I think that's the perfect way to put it. Cause it's like, you're only exposed to, you know, your tribe's way of doing things. And so from the outside looking in, you know, like, and that's very much my story too, Jared. So I was not, I did not come from a religious upbringing. I was not a pastor's kid or anything like that. I was very much uh, a nun. My fa- my family, we, I don't even honestly know if we were, like there was just no conversations about God or like what we believe. Like, you know, I, I always say like maybe, maybe if by default, as is kind of the way of <laughs> most Americans, it's like the default container is like, oh, I guess I'm a Christian. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but um yeah, it's it's really interesting. I think the church is it it almost loses its uh witnessing power, which I think is a big again, a big concern of many people where where it's like, yeah, like I want to you know, I want to see people saved, which is language that I cringe at, at now in my life, but or I want to see people come to Jesus, which I, I think when you boil it down to its essence just means like you want to see hope and wholeness in people's lives and transformation. And I I don't think that's a bad desire, but again, like this guarding of, of like, as you're saying, of (laughs) kind of almost like keeping people at arm's length. I, it just, at the end of the day, it's, it's almost like truth is actually like losing its power. You know, even if you have it, it's like, well, like you even, I think at one point or another, you even, you even referenced that line. If I'm without love, you know, I'm nothing, right? Like I'm a clanging symbol, but yeah, it, there's another line here again. If, I hope you don't mind me quoting, but you just say, uh, the intention, uh, to tell the truth in love may be good, but it can easily become a sneaky way to tell people why they're wrong about their lives. <laughs> so we can feel more certain in our own positions and feel good about our own moral standing before God. I think that right there for me sums it up (laughs) the times where I feel like I've been most dogged in my pursuit for like clinging to certainty. Maybe it is out of a desire to feel safe. But again, I I just feel like this like this reckless pursuit of, of love that we see, you know, set before God um, is it's going to cause you to do things um, that maybe are a little bit scary and I think that's okay. So what would you say to somebody who hears some of the stuff that we're saying and they're like, Oh, I don't know. Like, <laughs> like mm-hmm. what, how, what would you say to them? Uh, I mean, I would affirm where they are. I think it's important to, 
you know, take stock of, of what you're feeling and why you're feeling that. So if it's, I'm afraid, you know, let's talk about that. Like, what, what are you afraid of? Because there's some real fears, you know, people changing their mind about some of the things uh, leads to broken relationships. You know, this best friend that I've had for 10 years won't be my best friend if I change my mind about the Bible or about God, um, my family, my church, like there's, there's real stakes here. So again, it's not a battle of wits and knowledge. It's messy. It's relationships and it's emotion. And um, so, you know, I, I, I think there's, I would want to walk with that person and, and say, let's, let's take some inventory of what you're feeling. Cause it's feelings are messengers. They, it's probably telling you something um, that you got to pay, pay attention to, or you're going to have some some consequences you're not going to really like. And then we got to navigate that. So I think that for me, and I, I talk about that in the book, like taking stock of our own, of our own feelings and our own work that we have to work through so that we aren't using truth telling and we're not using religion as a weapon or as a defense mechanism or as a crutch. That's a hard, that's hard work because we often need those things. Yeah. So, Yeah. Gosh. Well, I, I do have a listener question, if you don't mind. Um, sure. So somebody said, I'm really curious about Jared's background and what brought him to his current theology belief system, whatever that is, because uh, I know he grew up similarly to myself, but curious to know what led him to where he's at now and how he still, how he still has such a good relationship with the Bible. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, how I came to it, I often say, I'll, I'll say it this way. I was a very sincere and curious kid. And what happens in my experience over the last handful of years, it's those are the kids who get burned because the system's not set up for someone to take what we say literally or seriously, right? So there's this... Uh, there's this quote, I was going to say famous, but it's only famous among nerds or philosophers. But um, <laughs> in, uh, I don't remember what book it's in, but Kierkegaard is probably in Fear and Trembling. And he talks about what would it look like if someone actually, so there was a pastor he was talking about in his story who was preaching about the need to be like Abraham and his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. And he said, what would happen if so someone came into this church and took that literally? we would call that a madman. Like we would not, you know, there's all these social cues that we learn about not actually taking literally or seriously mm. a lot of the things we hear in churches. I wasn't one of those kids, right? I wasn't a madman. I wasn't Abraham and Isaac going to sacrifice my son, but I took it very seriously. And that got me into more trouble than it was worth, right? So I started, I was encouraged to ask questions. I was encouraged to read the Bible really carefully but when the Bible itself started to poke holes in the ideology of the people in power in the congregations I was a part of, I learned quickly that, wait, oh, you didn't mean to take it seriously. You meant to toe the party line and bring the Bible along with you. And so that was really hurtful for me to realize as someone who I was kind of naive. Like I just wanted to do what the Bible said. Um, and then going to seminary, I learned because I didn't, I didn't learn my lesson. I'm an eight. I don't learn my lessons real easily when an authority tells me. So I just kept asking the questions and, um, you know, 
so I ended up going to seminary to learn more. And, uh, you know, I just realized, oh, the reason I kept having these problems is because the Bible itself is very complicated. It's not a, it's not a rule book like what I learned growing up. It, it doesn't, it's not the B-I-B-L-E, the basic instructions before leaving earth. It's like more complicated than that. And mm. the Bible says different things. And so I had to kind of wrestle through that. And there was a time to kind of answer the second part of that question where I just didn't read the Bible because I had a framework that was built into me that I had been learning since I was, you know, six years old, since I could read. So I couldn't just flip a switch and one day pick up the Bible and read it in a new way. Mm. As much as I wanted to, Yeah, it's sort of like parenting. Like I swore I would never parent like my parents on some of the things that they did. And I find myself doing the exact same thing. It's like, it's built into me. Like, I don't want to do it, <laughs> but I do it because it's just like programmed. Yeah. So with the reading the Bible is the same thing. So I was a pastor and I couldn't do it anymore. So actually I was a pastor and I, I stopped reading the Bible. So I had to kind of just go off memory and I was just kind of, you know, for a while I was making stuff up as I went, but I had to put it down. And it wasn't and in that time. What I had to do was go find other ways of reading the Bible. And I had to read about those, not read the Bible, but read about other people who read the Bible differently. So reading, say, like a Will Gaffney on feminist biblical interpretation and, and feminist midrash. I had to read new frameworks for how to engage and approach the Bible in ways that felt refreshing and honest to me and vulnerable to me. I didn't need any more uh, systematic theologies. I needed something different. Yeah. So I spent a good few years doing that. And then I came back to the Bible and realized, hey, I had some fresh eyes and I had let go of my anger. I had worked through my frustration and my baggage. And so, you know, I would encourage anyone, don't feel guilty. I, I often say, you know, we have a problem with shooting on ourselves. So <laughs> we, what I should do and what I ought to do keeps us blocked from doing what we need to do. Mm. And so don't feel bad that you just set it down. Go explore other things for a while. And then just trust that if God is who God says God is, and if the Bible is, they, we'll come back to it. We'll, we'll get there. Mm. It doesn't have to all be right now. Um, so go explore some some other things. And then for me, I ended up having a soft spot and finding it reengaged and finding meaning on my terms now and not on some system that I inherited. And you know, and other people don't do that. They go do that, explore, and then they stay in the desert for their whole life and they're not Christians anymore. That's okay. That's their journey. I, I'm not I'm not responsible for them. Um, I'm responsible to love them. Yeah. And that doesn't mean I need to be afraid for their decisions. Um, I have to respect them as adults who make their own choices. One of my favorite things that I saw, I saw you post recently, and it's in the book, uh, but you quote Rumi. And it says, out beyond ideas of right and wrong, there is a field. I'll meet you there. And then you go on to say, I don't need to know what you believe or how you live your life to know it's my responsibility as a follower of Jesus to love you in such a way that others wouldn't know whether you're one of my people or my enemy. When God is involved, the line between us and them gets erased. And friend... Mic drop. What the heck? That was brilliant. <laughs> um, do you mind unpacking that? Just like what what's so meaningful to you about that? I know you even said like I wrote this passage because I needed to hear it. Like why did why did you need to hear that? Yeah, I mean it comes from my reading of, of Matthew chapter five and in, in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And it's a, it's a verse that continues to haunt me even today because it's so practical. And I can't believe I'd missed it for so many years that what Jesus is saying there is, listen, be perfect the way God's perfect. And, and how do we know that God's perfect in, in the way that God acts? It's because God sends rain on the just and the unjust. God causes the sun to rise for the righteous and the unrighteous, meaning if we were to tally up how God behaves toward the righteous and unrighteous, we wouldn't know the difference, which can feel unjust. But he's Jesus in that moment is overturning something that's actually in the Bible. We would call it a Deuteronomic theology. It's almost this karma theology that actually is weaved in and out through the Bible. If you read De Deuteronomy, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you do good things, I'll give you all these good things. You'll get blessings and all that. If you do bad things, all these bad things will happen to you. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not how God is. God gives gifts indiscriminately. And not only does God do it, but now I'm telling you, you need to do it too. And so when I look at my life, if I say, would someone be able to tell who I like or dislike, who I'm comfortable being around and uncomfortable being around, who I think is right or wrong politically, who's in the wrong socioeconomic class? Would I be able to tell? And the unfortunate reality is, yeah, for most of my life, sure. Yeah. Um, because what I had as my mantra was that I needed to keep myself pure to be in the world, not of the world. And so I make these lines between us and them so I can keep myself pure. But Jesus is saying, that's not the goal. The goal is to erase these lines. And that's what love is. Mm. Gosh, man. Well, let's land this plane, Jared. I, I loved everything <laughs> that you've had to say. Uh, where can we go to find the book? Uh, where can we find you? All that. Yeah. So uh, you can find me and the book at jaredbias.com. So you can go there. You can buy the book anywhere online that you would buy books. Um, and then of course, we also have the the podcast, The Bible for Normal People, where we talk all things Bible and sometimes just Christian faith stuff. And uh, if you wanted to, we have lots of communities there too. You can go to patreon.com front slash The Bible for Normal People um, and see all the things we have going on there. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Jared Bias, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. Well, there you have it. All right. How you feeling? Wasn't that a just delicious conversation? Was it refreshing? Was it honest? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, gosh. Jared Bias is a saint. He is a, a, a scoundrel and a handsome gentleman. Uh, really appreciate him coming on. Uh, I, I love this book. I'm just going to say it. I think it's a good book. And uh, I, he's got a great podcast. So if you haven't checked that out, uh, already you should so there is that um i hope this helped you in some way uh, as we always say we want to make this a conversation and we don't want it to just end here in your earbuds uh, so please feel free reach out to us let us know what you got from this episode you can email us refreshingly honest christian at gmail.com we're also on social media we're on instagram twitter facebook all the places and so please uh, feel free to reach out. And if you haven't already, leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know. What do you what do you think of the show? Give us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And so, um, yeah, that's all I've got for today. I'm just going to leave it at that. No more, no more plugs. No more 
inspiring things to say. Just (laughs) thanks for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. And so uh, until next time, I've been David Metcalf, and we will see you next Thursday. All right, everybody. Take care. Love you. Bye.